there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ugh, I'm soaked through. Always whining. Someone will come by. I don't... Look! Going north? Yes. This weather sure came out of nowhere. We were surprised. We're going to Illinois. I'm from there originally. Don't talk about that. He needs to know where we're going. You always talk about yourself. He doesn't care. I do. I was being friendly. He needs to know where we're going. I'm helping. Yet you couldn't have helped us by getting a car? You're the one with- Don't you- Oh, to hell with you. Hey, what's the matter with you? I'm not listening to this all the way to Illinois. Please get out of my car. Are you kidding me? It's best we part ways here. Come on, buddy. Have a nice trip. Now look what you've done, Bobby Ann. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the mysterious young woman found murdered along a Kentucky highway. For years, she was only known as Tent Girl until a young man named Todd Matthews came along. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. The year was 1995. 24-year-old Todd Matthews worked on the assembly line at an auto parts manufacturing plant in Livingston, Tennessee, less than a mile from where he grew up. He now lived with his wife, Lori, and their two-year-old son, Dylan, in a single-wide trailer next to his parents' house. But his mind wasn't on his work that day, and it hadn't been for a long time. For the last eight years, Todd had been chasing the ice-cold trail of a girl who was murdered a few years before he was born. Lori's dad, Wilbur Riddle, stumbled on the girl's body in 1968. She had been shoved into a canvas bag, her body decayed almost beyond recognition. Although police had done their best, she remained unidentified and was buried under the nickname she was given by the press, Tent Girl. Georgetown, Kentucky was not a place used to dealing with murder, but local law enforcement stepped up to the challenge and threw themselves into the search to identify the young victim, who they nicknamed Tent Girl. They were determined to identify her and bring her killer to justice. A sketch artist's pencil portrait 
brought in dozens of leads, as did a story about Tent Girl in a popular True Detective magazine. But lead after lead produced nothing but dead ends. Witnesses saw a man and a young woman matching Tent Girl's description hitchhiking less than a month before her disappearance. But they could never positively identify either of them. After three frustrating years filled with countless leads that went nowhere, the police finally closed the case. Tent Girl was buried in the local potter's field, the inscription on her small gravestone stating the bare facts that were known, her height, weight, approximate age, and where and when she was found. The last word is the most telling, unidentified. 30 years later, what started as a hobby had soon consumed Todd Matthews' life. Every moment he didn't spend at the factory, he spent at the library, looking up anything he could find on the Tent Girl's case. He wouldn't rest until Tent Girl was identified and brought home to her family. When Todd's son Dylan was born in 1992, the idea came to him that the reason Tent Girl was found with a cloth diaper was because she was a mother. With that in mind, he wrote the Scott County Sheriff, the coroner, even the governor of Kentucky, urging them to exhume the body and re-examine her pelvis for signs that she had borne a child. But he never received any response. By 1995, Todd had been attempting to identify Tent Girl for eight years. But just like the law enforcement officers who had investigated her murder 27 years before, he was failing. And he was frustrated. Still, he was not about to give up. After finishing his shift as a minimum wage factory worker, he would spend his nights as an amateur detective, searching for clues to Tent Girl's identity. On his off days from the plant, he trekked to library after library, collecting whatever information he could find on the Tent Girl case, always thinking that maybe he could spot some hint investigators had overlooked. Early on, his wife Lori waited patiently in the car while Todd rummaged through microfiche and picked up old copies of newspapers from archives. But the years had taken their toll. Lori was getting fed up. It seemed to her that Todd cared more about a dead girl than he did about his own family. Todd just couldn't let Tent Girl go, and his and Lori's fights got more and more heated. But the fights weren't just about the time Todd spent digging into Tent Girl. They were also about the money. Well, Todd was racking up big bills driving back and forth from Tennessee to Kentucky where Tent Girl was found. Phone bills skyrocketed thanks to Todd's long-distance calls to anyone who might know anything about her case. And hitting every library that could contain articles about Tent Girl's murder used up gas and Xeroxing money. Todd was working around the clock, taking on extra shifts to make ends meet while spending his days off driving up to Kentucky to do research. But despite working double, sometimes triple shifts, Todd was still taking out cash advances on his credit card to keep the family afloat. The longer his investigation went on, the more Todd was determined to identify Tent Girl, no matter what it took. But by 1996, he was bankrupt and Lori had had enough. She rented an apartment and moved out, taking their son Dylan with her. That was the lowest part of Todd's life. His wife and son had left him, he was underwater financially, and he was still hitting dead end after dead end in his tent girl investigation. Todd finally had to concede that his family and friends were right. 
as difficult as it would be, it was time to give up his crazy attachment to Tent Girl. He set his sights on working hard and winning his wife and son back. By 1997, Todd was promoted to quality control at the plant. At age 26, that meant no more assembly lines and no more double shifts. He and Lori were back together again after being separated for over six months. They upgraded from a single-wide trailer to a double-wide. However, Todd kept his filing cabinet containing his tent girl stash, everything he had collected over the years. Copies of newspaper articles and microfiche, letters he had written various authorities. It reminded him. All that investigating and still no answers. He tacked a photo of Tent Girl's headstone on the monitor of his huge compact computer. Once again, determined to continue his search. Although this time, at Lori's insistence, he vowed it would not get in the way of his family. It was 1997, and Todd's search did become easier and less intrusive, thanks to the Internet. When Todd began his quest to identify Tent Girl, the Internet simply didn't exist. It only became publicly available in 1991, and it wasn't until the mid to late 90s that it became mainstream. Finally, Todd had access to a world where distance was no longer an obstacle. Instead of spending days traveling, Todd was able to conduct his searches online, contacting government and media offices by email. There was still no internet service providers in Livingston, Tennessee in 1997, so late at night, when Lori and Dylan were asleep, when there were no phone calls to interrupt, Todd used his dial-up modem. In November 1997, 10 years into his search, Todd created a website, tentgirl.com. He hoped the young woman's family would find it and reach out to contact him. But the holidays came and went, then New Year's, and still there was no response. When his website proved futile, Todd got back to his amateur detective sleuthing. In early 1998, a year after moving his search to the internet, Todd sent a note to a pink-tinted web page, polka-dotted with dozens of tiny magnifying glasses, called Kentucky's Unsolved Mysteries. He convinced reporters to do stories in both a local Lexington, Kentucky newspaper and on a TV news station about his efforts to use the Internet to solve the Tent Girl mystery. Todd's Internet research and newly generated media stories triggered dozens of emails. Unfortunately, none of them contained information that Todd didn't already know. It was the end of January 1998, an uncharacteristically cold night in Tennessee. With heavy snow and power outages, late at night, Todd was at his usual spot in his office. The house was finally quiet. Todd liked to surf the web when no one would bother him. In his searches, he had come across a free online bulletin board maintained by a pair of Dallas private investigators, Crane and Hibbs. The website was packed with listings. Todd scrolled past adoptees looking for birth parents, missing dogs, cats, scooters, and everything else under the sun. It was after midnight when Todd found the descriptions of missing people. He scanned through hundreds of reports of missing senior citizens, children, teens. Then he saw it, a listing that put a lump in his throat. A woman over 500 miles away in Arkansas named Rosemary Westbrook was looking for information on her older sister. The posting read, 
My sister Barbara has been missing from our family since the latter part of 1967. She has brown hair, brown eyes, is about five feet two inches tall, and was last seen in the Lexington, Kentucky area. If you have any information, please contact me at the address posted. Todd leaned in closer, his heart pounding. The age, timing, and geography of where Barbara was last seen corresponded with Tent Girl. Could this woman's sister really be Tent Girl? It was late January 1998. Her sister had been missing since 1967. After some 30 years, could Tent Girl finally have a name? Could Todd have found her? For the next few days, Todd turned the posting over and over in his mind. Then, finally, he did what he later admits he shouldn't have done. He made a cold call to the family. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. In 1987, teenager Todd Matthews first heard the story of Tent Girl, a mysterious young murder victim found stuffed in a canvas bag by the side of the interstate. Ever since then, Todd had been determined to do what law enforcement couldn't do way back in 1968, identify Tent Girl and reunite her with her family. Todd's passion to help an anonymous stranger brought his own family to the brink of collapse. But there was another family who had been suffering as well. The Hackmans. Todd first heard of Rosemary Hackman Westbrook when she posted in an online bulletin board looking for her sister. But that wasn't the family's first loss. Shortly before Rosemary's birth in 1957, her father Harry drove with her six-year-old brother Harry Jr. to Belleville, Illinois, about 10 miles from their home in Collinsville. While they were there, a flood struck and both her father and brother were killed. The Hackman family was devastated, and Rosemary's grieving mom, Louise, too overwhelmed by raising Rosemary's four older sisters, sent infant Rosemary to live with her brother and sister-in-law in East St. Louis, a little over 11 miles away. Although Rosemary saw her mom and her siblings often, her aunt and uncle became her legal guardians. Then in 1963, when Rosemary was six, the carnival came to East St. Louis. It was then that Rosemary's 19-year-old sister, Barbara, known as Bobby Ann, met a young man named Earl Taylor. Step right up. Get your ticket here. Earl drove a truck in the convoy that transported the Tilt-A-Whirl, the Ferris wheel, and the booths of the Midway, where you could knock down pins to win a Cupid doll. He was clean-shaven, muscular, in his early 20s, with a young daughter. One day, Earl walked into the Illinois Social Service office where Bobby's mother, Louise, worked, clutching his little girl's hand. Morning, ma'am. You know where I could find someone to babysit my honey here? Oh, what a cutie. What's your name, sweetheart? This here's Bonnie. I'm sad to say her mom's run off and left us. And I can't watch her because I need to work. I'm so sorry about that. But I have just the girl to help you. Louise volunteered her second oldest daughter, Bobby Ann, as a babysitter. Bobby Ann was warm and friendly, good with kids. And after meeting Earl, she was in love. Or maybe she was just looking for a way out of Collinsville, because soon after they met, she went with Earl to the county seat in Belleville. This the county clerk's office? Yes, sir. What can I do for you? We want to get married. 
Let me just get the certificate. Your name, sir? Earl G. Taylor. Age? 24. And you, miss? Name? Barbara Ann Hackman, and I'm 19. Okay, so, on this day, the 6th of August, 1963, you are officially man and wife. Congratulations. Next! Although the wedding was spur of the moment, Bobby Ann seemed happy, so her family was happy for her, even if it meant she was destined to leave them. Days after Earl and Bobby Ann were married, the carnival packed up, loaded their flatbed trucks, and headed for the next town. Earl, Bobby Ann, and Earl's young daughter Bonnie went with them. Rosemary was six when Bobby Ann left. For the next few years, the carnival migrated up and down the East Coast. Bobby Ann checked in regularly with her family in Illinois from payphones. In 1964, a year after she moved away, Bobby Ann called to say she had given birth to a baby boy named Earl Jr., who they called Sonny. A year after that, she had a daughter, Dorothy Michelle, known as Shelley. Rosemary remembers a photo of Bobby Ann arriving in the mail. In it, she was sitting in a straight-backed chair, her hair in curlers, smiling happily at baby Shelley on her lap. The young family settled in Florida for a time, but Earl's work as a trucker kept them on the move. Still a young child, Rosemary missed her big sister and eagerly looked forward to hearing from her. Then, according to Rosemary, in 1968, when she was 11, the calls and letters from Bobby Ann stopped. Rosemary waited for months and months, thinking her 24-year-old sister would be back in touch with her at any minute. But Rosemary never heard anything more. It was like her beloved sister had disappeared off the face of the earth. The family had no way to get in touch with Earl, so they filed a missing persons report in Florida, where they believed Bobby Ann had last lived. But years went by and nothing ever came of it. Then in the early 70s, when Rosemary was a teenager, her guardian and uncle was offered a job with the railroad in Arkansas, and the family left East St. Louis. They moved over 400 miles to Bauxite in central Arkansas, about a half hour outside Little Rock. It was there Rosemary met her husband Mark and settled down in the nearby town of Benton, only a few miles to the west. But the mystery of Bobby Ann's whereabouts was always in the back of her mind. Much like Todd Matthews' search for tent girl's identity, Rosemary never lost faith that she would eventually find her sister. At one point, she called all the Barbara Ann Taylors listed in the country that she could find, but none of them were her sister. Every year, if a state fair came to Benton or a carnival stopped in nearby Little Rock, Rosemary would go with her husband and son and scan the faces in the crowd. Mom, Dad, I want to go on the Ferris wheel. In a minute, honey. You okay, Rosemary? I know it's irrational, but I just keep thinking, maybe she's here, somewhere. I think you would have seen her by now. Bobby Ann always kept in touch with us. I know. It's been years, and not a word. That's not like her, not at all. Something must have happened. There must be a reason she hasn't called. Then in 1989, more than 20 years after Bobby Ann disappeared, Rosemary received a call from one of her sisters. It turned out that Bobby Ann's daughter, Shelley, 
had tracked down her mom's family. Back in 1968, when Rosemary's family lost touch with Bobby Ann, they'd also lost touch with Earl and their three children. But now, Shelley and her half-sister Bonnie were both in their 20s, wanting to reconnect with their family. They were finally able to piece together the story of their mother's life. Apparently, it was late 1967 when Earl deposited his three children on his parents' doorstep in Ohio, telling them that Bobby Ann had run off with another man. Bobby Ann was 24 at the time. The three siblings, Earl's daughter Bonnie, Sonny, and Shelley, grew up in Ohio, adopted and raised as their own by Earl's relatives in three separate families. Earl hardly ever visited any of his kids, and when he did stop by, he kept his truck motor running. In 1984, a drunk driver killed 19-year-old Sonny while he was riding his bike. The families, thinking that Earl might show up at his funeral, decided to tell Shelley a little more about her background, including her mother's name. To teenage Shelley, who lived a happy life with her adoptive parents, it was painful to wonder why Bobby Ann had abandoned her as an infant and never even attempted to find her. Not long after Sonny's funeral, Earl was diagnosed with cancer, and Shelley went to pump him for answers about her mother. Dad? Dad, it's Shelly. Can I get you anything? What do you want, girl? Just to see you. I'm sorry about... So am I. Dad, I'm hoping you can tell me some about Mom. You have a mother. She raised you. My real mom, Bobby Ann. What do you want to know? What was she like? How did you meet her? I was driving for the carnival back then. We were in Collinsville, Illinois. That's where she's from? (laughs) Dad. Can't talk no more. But... You hear me? Earl clammed up and refused to say anything else. Two years later, in 1987, Earl Taylor died. Shelley was now determined to find out what happened to her mother. She drove to Collinsville, Illinois, Bobby Ann's hometown, and looked up every hackman she could find. Finally, someone directed Shelley to an address. When she knocked, an elderly woman opened the door. Yes? I'm looking for Barbara Ann Hackman. Bobby Ann's been gone for a long, long time. Uh, Well... I'm her daughter. Oh, oh, child. Bobby Ann's grandmother smiled. It had been three decades since her son, Harry, and six-year-old grandson, Harry Jr., had died in the floods, and over two decades since Bobby Ann went missing. You, you look just like her. Armed with names and addresses of her aunts, Shelly started making phone calls. Hello? Aunt Rosemary? Who's this? My name's Shelly. My mom's your sister, Barbara Ann. Oh my gosh! To Rosemary and her sisters, Shelly was the spitting image of Bobby Ann. Rosemary wept the first time she met her niece. Shelly finally got to see pictures of her mom for the first time, and she was stunned. This is a picture of your mom, Bobby Ann. She's holding you. Oh, 
Oh, wow. I look just like her. You do. Just like looking in a mirror. By the early 90s, Bobby Ann's sisters and two daughters had found each other, even though they were no closer to finding out what happened to Bobby Ann. Shelly was still a baby when her mom disappeared, but her half-sister Bonnie was seven and had more memories of Bobby Ann and her dad. Bonnie remembered that the family had moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where Bobby Ann worked as a curb service girl at a drive-in. She recalled her stepmother was pretty and bubbly. The last time Bonnie saw Bobby Ann was one morning early December 1967, when Bonnie was seven, the night before she had heard her parents arguing. But the next morning, Bobby Ann helped her get ready for school, just like always. However, when Bobby got back from school that afternoon, she found Earl packing up the family's belongings into their station wagon. He told her that Bobby Ann had run off with another man. She recalled seeing Bobby Ann's purse on the front seat, but at seven years old, it didn't even occur to her that her father might not be telling the whole truth. But recounting that conversation to her half-sister and her stepmom's family over 20 years later, Earl's words didn't ring as true. In fact, all three women, Bonnie, Shelley, and Rosemary, were beginning to view Earl's explanation for Bobby Ann's sudden disappearance with suspicion. By now, it was October 1995, Halloween night, as a matter of fact. The same night Todd Matthews had first heard about Tent Girl eight years earlier. Rosemary and her family never knew Bobby Ann had been living in Lexington, Kentucky. Armed with new information from Shelley and Bonnie, Rosemary called the Lexington Police Department. Missing persons, Officer Lily speaking. My name's Rosemary Westbrook, and I'd like to file a report. Who are you looking for? My sister, Barbara Ann Hackman. When was she last seen? Late 1967. 28 years ago? And you're just filing this now? On Halloween night? Years later, a reporter doing a story on the search for Tent Girl's identity discovered that report was never filed. The assumption is that Officer Lily was simply humoring a strange phone caller on a Halloween night. But Rosemary didn't find that information out until much later. Meanwhile, she continued to do everything she could to search for Bobby Ann, posting on a variety of missing persons websites, among them a site hosted by two Dallas private investigators, Crane and Hibbs. It was early February 1998. Rosemary was 40 years old, and she had been searching for her older sister for over 10 years when the phone rang. It was a call from Tennessee. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. It had been a long journey for Todd Matthews. He was 27 years old. It had been over 11 years since he vowed to discover the identity of a young woman murdered and stuffed into a canvas bag left by the side of the interstate. Something not even the police could do when she was found in 1968. For some 30 years, Tent Girl was the only name she was known by. But in February 1998, Todd saw a post on a missing persons website from a woman named Rosemary Westbrook, whose long-missing sister matched the age, description, and location of Tent Girl. After days of deliberation, Todd picked up the phone and made a call. Todd later admitted 
that as quickly as Rosemary's online post brought him a sense of relief, it turned into a sense of dread. If he was right about Tent Girl, was his call going to end this woman's dreams of finding her sister alive? Would it traumatize her? Or would she be relieved? Thankfully, at the other end of the phone call, Rosemary remained composed as Todd told her he believed his father-in-law found her sister Bobby Ann's body about 30 years ago in 1968. They quickly traded information and discovered that Tent Girl and Bobby Ann were remarkably similar. Both women were about the same general height, weighed about 110 pounds, had reddish-brown hair and gaps between their front teeth, which was a common feature in Rosemary and Bobby Ann's family. Rosemary faxed Todd photos of Bobby Ann, and that sealed the deal. From the sketch artist's portrait, she seemed a perfect match for Tent Girl. Still, they couldn't know for sure. Todd immediately sent all their information, along with Rosemary's old Kodak photos of Bobby Ann, to Scott County Sheriff Bobby Hammonds. Then he and Rosemary held their breaths. The coroner, Marvin Yoakum, compared the family photos to the autopsy images. They were enough of a match to justify exhuming the body to collect DNA to compare with the family of the missing sister. Unfortunately, February 1998 was the dead of winter. The ground was so frozen, the sheriff had to wait weeks before the weather cleared. The wait seemed interminable to Todd. After devoting 11 long years to giving Tent Girl back her identity, after almost losing his marriage and his way, would it all be worth it? Would Tent Girl finally get to go home? And needless to say, Rosemary and her family were on pins and needles as well. Then in March 1998, the weather grew a little milder. And on a sunny winter's day, with the temperature in the low 40s, the backhoe operator maneuvered his machine in front of Tent Girl's simple grave, and he began to dig. We got her! But was she really Bobby Ann? Tent Girl's body was sent to a lab in Frankfort, Kentucky, a mere 30 minutes away from Georgetown, for examination by the state medical examiner and forensic anthropologist. We have on the table the remains of a young woman. Estimated age at the time of death is between 20 and 30 years old. Bobby Ann's age at the time of her disappearance was 24, which fits with this new age estimate for Tent Girl. The previous estimate in 1968 was that Tent Girl was between 16 and 19. We can only presume the discrepancy in age is due to more advanced autopsy techniques. I am now extracting subject's bone with elbow joint, along with the lower jaw and teeth. Tent Girl's body samples were sent to LabCorp in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, to have DNA samples extracted. This DNA was to be compared with DNA samples from Rosemary Westbrook's saliva. All that was left to do was wait. Then, almost two months later, at the end of April, the results were finally in. Todd, it's Sheriff Hammonds. DNA testing confirmed. Your tent girl has been identified as 24-year-old Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor. After 11 years of searching, Todd had finally learned tent girl's name. Because the Georgetown, Kentucky community had spent so much time caring for Tent Girl, adopting her in their own way, Bobby Ann's family decided to leave her where she was. 
That spring, they held an official service for Bobby Ann in the cemetery where she had rested all this time. After 30 years of missing her and wondering where she was, her family finally got to say goodbye. We are gathered here together to mourn the loss of Barbara Ann. Born September 12, 1943. Gone all too soon. Everyone in Georgetown was there, but Todd was the hero of the day. The family chose to leave the original tent girl grave intact. But in a final act of dignity, they had a second marker placed beneath the original stone. It bears Bobby Ann's full birth name, her nickname, and an approximate date of death. What the additional grave marker doesn't include is Bobby Ann's married name. While Tent Girl finally had a name, Bobby Ann's murder remains unsolved. The primary suspect was Earl Taylor, but since he succumbed to cancer in 1987, the matter was never investigated and Earl was never officially implicated. The circumstantial evidence against Earl is strong, though. Police believe he may have killed his wife during an argument. According to people who knew him, he was supposedly an impulsive, sometimes violent man. Other clues point to Earl as well. Bobby Ann's body was found not far from I-75, the highway leading towards Ohio, where Earl's family lived. And the canvas that Bobby Ann was found stuffed in resembles the kind used by carnivals. And don't forget that Bonnie recalled seeing her mom's purse in the car when Earl dropped the kids off with their relatives. I need you to watch them. Just a few weeks. Where's Bobby Ann? I don't want to talk about it. Not in front of them. If I'm watching them, I deserve to know. Come inside. I don't have time. It's temporary. Will she be showing up here angry with you? She wants nothing to do with them. Earl, I'm so sorry. Come in and have some tea. I'll be back in a few weeks. Earl. She left me, damn it! She left me. At the time of Bobby Ann's disappearance, no search was made because Earl told everybody Bobby Ann had run away with another man. And although her family filed a missing persons report in Florida, They never filed one in Lexington because they didn't know Earl and Bobby Ann were living in Kentucky. So was Earl Taylor involved in his wife's death? Suspicion falls on him because he never reported Bobby Ann missing. But it's also possible that Bobby Ann really had run away and met her fate at the hands of someone else. Is there someone else? Does it matter, Earl? What about our babies? Ugh, throwing a diaper? Really? It's clean. Because I washed it. Thank your lucky stars I didn't throw a punch. And you want me to stay. Bobby Ann, come on! At least bring back the diaper. We don't have that many. Screw you, Earl. When Bobby Ann lost contact with her family in 1967, she had three children, including baby Shelly, which could explain where the diaper found with her body came from. And the truck driver saw a couple arguing. Was Bobby Ann hitchhiking with her lover? Did she say enough with Earl's abuse and leave him? Or was this no more than another false lead? Todd Matthews always believed Earl was responsible. And looking at the evidence, we have to agree. After 11 years, Todd had done what he set out to do. Give Tent Girl a name and reunite her with her family. But that wasn't enough for Todd. 
1999, the Doe Network began as a website of volunteers who assist investigators with cold cases concerning missing and unidentified persons. Its mission? To give the nameless back their names and return the missing to their families. Todd continued the work he'd begun with Tent Girl, using the website to identify even more missing people. During his time volunteering with the Doe Network, Todd also founded another group, Project EDAN, which stands for Everyone Deserves a Name. It's comprised of certified forensic artists who voluntarily create sketches and clay reconstructions of unidentified remains to aid law enforcement. Todd was still doing this all on a volunteer basis when he helped the Department of Justice create the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. On the web, it's at NAMUS, that's N-A-M-U-S dot gov. Then in 2012, Todd took on his current role as Director of Case Management and Communications of NAMUS. Now, instead of managing workers at the factory, he pursues his passion, managing missing persons cases. Even though Todd's life has changed dramatically, some things have remained the same. Now, even though he's employed by the Department of Justice, he still works out of his home in Livingston, Tennessee, on the very same property where he was born. What began as then-teenage Todd Matthews' 11-year quest to discover a young murder victim's identity turned into a lifelong career. Although Bobby Ann Hackman's murder may never be solved, her impact is still felt by the hundreds of families who are reunited with their missing relatives through Todd's efforts. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Linda Marr and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. 